Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have a returning guest, really great guy, uh, Ken McCarthy, very wise person that has a lot of knowledge of history and an interesting perspective on what's going now in terms of the corruption, the rampant corruption that appears to be happening worldwide, not just in the U.S. Uh, Ken is actually one of the pioneers of using the internet to do marketing. He first started working with the internet, it appears, in uh, 1993 or 1994 when it had just started. He runs a company called The System Seminar, and for a number of years, he put on really great internet marketing seminars that I attended. He still has a club, uh, The System Club, where he gives uh, advice and talks about what's going on right now, not only with marketing, but politically and with the uh, coronavirus, et cetera. So, Ken, thanks for coming back. Oh, thanks for having me back. Yeah, we, we have a uh, very lighthearted, fun topic to talk about today, and that's corruption, systemic corruption. And uh, this comes from a lot of questions I've been asking Ken on, you know, why is this happening and why is that happening and what do you think is going to happen from here? So he's come on to discuss uh, his knowledge of corruption. Yeah, and, and, it, and it all flows from a knowledge of logistics. I think everybody that's in business focuses on logistics because that's how things actually get done. You know, there's strategy, which is fascinating, and, and theory, uh, and then there's tactics, which are which are very important. But ultimately, you know, somebody's got to show up and do something, or, or a group of people have to do things in a concerted way, or or just nothing happens. So, as a business person, I'm really interested in in logistics, but I've also always been interested in in media and in the influence of media on the public mind and in the history of the influence of media on the public mind. And that's that helped me tremendously in being, you know, I won't, be, I won't beat around the bush, one of the foremost uh, uh, visionaries on how the Internet was going to unfold. I mean, I, I oh, wow. just for people that don't know, I organized the first conference on the web as commercial potential as a publishing medium, the very first one ever. I wrote an, the first article published on email marketing in a mainstream marketing journal. One of my students who I introduced the concept of click-through ads to is the person responsible for putting the banner ad on the map. Time Magazine credits me with being the person to understand that the click-through rate was going to be a key metric in the commercialization of the Internet. I developed uh, sequential autoresponders as early as 1996, which was before commercial versions of things like, yeah. And, and, you know, I I had, I commissioned the first article on video on the internet to be written and I published it in 1994. So I'm, I'm better than average in in that area, you know? And then I, and then I know people respect money. And, and so let me just say, I made a lot of money, not as much as Bill Gates or, or Steve Jobs, but, but I, I can, I can definitely be, be classed as a successful businessman. And I've, and I've had also the opportunity to talk with and, and, hear the inside story of many, many, many successful businesses. But I really feel that my success flows from an understanding of history. And the reason I was able to jump into the Internet so quickly and early and clearly, uh, and anybody can read my stuff from the early 90s, uh, it's still 
still relevant today. Um, I, the talk I gave at that conference in 94, 90% of it is absolutely applicable uh, today. Um, wow. Share one quick I think this is uh, 2008. I remember seeing your stuff and you're talking about mobile marketing. And, and at the time, I remember looking at a phone and I'm thinking, it's hard to see this tiny screen and push these tiny buttons and touch screens or they hurt my fingers. And how is this ever supposed to become the predominant way that, that people, you know, deal with the internet? And you were right. It is the predominant way now. So. Well, it, not only that, but the very first book ever written on, on mobile marketing was written by Kim Dushinsky, who was introduced to the whole concept of marketing on the internet by me. She was a student. And when she came to me with the idea of writing that book, I said, go for it. I'll, I'll support you a hundred percent. It's, it's, it's where we, where we, where we're going next. Uh, in terms of books too, I just want to say that best selling book on, on, uh, Google AdWords ever written, Perry Marshall. Uh, he was introduced to pay-per-click marketing, and the second big, biggest seller by Howie Jacobson, also introduced to the subject by me. I think the best book on uh, web design uh, called Convert by Ben Hunt was written by a web designer who had already over 15 years of experience before he took one of our classes, and it completely revolutionized his approach to, to web design. So definitely have had a big – and I don't say this to brag, but just, just so people know, I'm not just some guy – in, in his parents' basement, cooking up conspiracy theories. You know, I've actually, I've gotten a few things right over the years, you know. And, and again, I want to, I just want to double back and say the reason for that is not because I'm so smart, it's because I am an avid student of history. And the more history you know, the, the easier it is to, to see the dynamics and the flows and also appreciate the logistics of things, how things actually happen. So um, one last thing about the Internet because this will help. The reason I could see the Internet succeeding was that, to me, all the Internet was was going to be a duplication and a rationalization and a uh, speeding up and an adding of convenience to things that we already did. We already love text. Uh, we already love looking at color photos. We already love listening to the radio when we drive the car. Uh, we already love looking at flashing lights on screens for hours on end, you know, Internet video. So. We, we, all those things were already happening. So from my point of view, I mean, I, could, I, I am comfortable. I'm not great at technology, but I'm comfortable with it. And I could see that, hey, if, if we've got a, a 1,400 board modem, if I can't even remember how slow those modems used to be. If we could do that, well, we could have a T1 in everybody's house eventually. And once we get a T1 in everybody's house, we're going to be able to stream video. And once we are able to stream flickering images on people's computer screens, we're going to hook them, period. You know, so even though I was 10 years early on that, it wasn't a great leap, but I do have sometimes an ability to see things that are coming that just people don't get. I, I have very little interest in consensus. I like knowing what the consensus is because, you know, it's good to know. But take, as for me, taking consensus seriously, I don't care. Like if everybody starts telling me the sky's red tomorrow, everybody on the planet starts telling me that. If I look at it and see it's blue, I'm going to say it's blue till the end. I'm not going to change my, my point of view unless somebody can you know, really, really convince. It's just my nature. It's just how I'm wired. It's, a, it's an accident of birth. Uh, <laughs> so one of the things I've been interested in for a very long time, uh, this would have to go back at least to the 80s, but maybe even the 1970s when I was a teenager. It was as I've, as a marketer, uh, I was interested in, in persuasion. And uh, my very first businesses were concert promotion. So when you're a concert promoter, you have to ask yourself the question, what makes people show up in large numbers to pay money to hear somebody play? 
And um, again, going against the consensus, I was always interested in promoting musicians that I thought were great versus musicians that were already famous. But when you're trying to promote musicians that nobody's ever heard of, you've, you've got a very difficult uh, mountain to climb. But I figured out how to do it, you know. Uh, you use the media, and you get the media to tell the public that this musician's really amazing, and you should come out and hear him. And it worked. It worked. I, I, there was a guy. Uh, he he actually went on to have several uh, Grammy nominations. He was a friend at uh, and, and even a roommate for a while. And his name's Stanley Jordan. If you're a jazz guitar person, you know who that is. And you know he was playing in coffee houses and maybe making twenty bucks and. 95% of the people weren't even listening. Uh, I thought he was great. I was just dumbfounded that everybody didn't stop what they were doing and listening. Uh, but the consensus was he was just another guitar player, so everybody just went along with their, their normal social routine. But I didn't agree with that, so I got to, to a newspaper in the, in the town that we were in, and I, I put on this concert, and I, you know, I wrote this amazing, basically a puff piece. It was all true, but it was, it was highly complimentary. And they ran it. And my God, we had a thousand people show up to this outdoor summer concert in the park. Uh, the, the wow, that's cool. Car, <laughs> and, and, oh, the other thing I did, just, well, you know, I tell you, when, if you're doing good science, uh, you need to know how to promote yourself. So this won't hurt people interested in science either. So the other thing we did, I did, which was, which, which frankly, it was one of the smartest things I've ever done ever. I don't think I've ever improved on it. Was this concert was a week after the Fourth of July fireworks. So I went down and I hired some people to help me, and we stood at the exit of the fireworks with flyers. And every every single person that came out of the uh, the fireworks exhibit got handed a flyer about the concert that was coming up next week. Now hey, this piggyback. Cool. Well, it's, it's perfect marketing because a you know that 100% of the people that are getting the message are people inclined to get in their cars, drive somewhere at night, and see a show. <laughs> Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. You know, what I had, so it was like a perfect market, uh, message to market match. There was, you know, I didn't buy a billboard, uh, where, you know, 10,000 random people would see it. I put the billboard in the hand of people that already were in the habit of getting in the car and driving somewhere and sitting under the blanket outdoors and enjoying, uh, some summer display. So between those two things, overnight, we went from him lucky to make 20 bucks and have one guy listening to a thousand people sitting in rapt attention thinking he's the second coming. Well, yeah, but that's media. You know, that's media. So I've studied this my entire life. I, I, I studied social psychology at Princeton. I studied neuroscience at Princeton. Uh, I really was into it. And then I spent uh, several years with a business teaching learning, teaching people how to learn more efficiently. And so um, in the process of designing all that course material, I learned a lot about uh, which I piggybacked actually on the things that I'd learned academically, th things like attention, 
you know, the nature of attention, which is a big issue in psychology, just just the whole physiology of being conscious and awake and attending to something, uh, very important. I also learned about memory, how memory works, uh, how memory breaks down, how impressions, uh, psychological impressions are formed, how ideas are formed. And then I, uh, I did a lot of writing. I've always been a writer and a copywriter, and if anybody knows about that profession, it's it's the writing of persuasion. You're creating a mood. You're creating a, a uh, rationale. You're creating reason for, to do, reason to believe. You're, you're piling on evidence. Uh, you're giving case studies. You're coming up with colorful imagery, all to capture the attention of the reader and, you know, keep them, you know, attached to the message and just keep piling on your evidence, a lot like a... Uh, a lawyer in a legal case, right? I mean, one of the big things is just keep piling up that evidence uh, until, what is it, they, what do they say, the predominance of evidence, you know, the overwhelming predominance, you know? The, the preponderance. Uh, preponderance, preponderance, I love that word, right? And so these are all things that not only I ha- have, you know, a classic scientific training in, I had a practical training in working with people to develop their ability to remember uh, and then I also had a lot of experience in persuading people to buy things and go places and do things and take career course, you know, you know, change careers and, and, you know, so, so I've, I've got a lot of, you know, I'm like a, I'm like a plumber that's, that's plumbed a thousand houses. You know, I actually really know plumbing or I've wired, you know, or, or, or like I'm an electrician who's, who's wired a thousand houses. I really, I really know wiring. Therefore, when I see somebody else, engaged in a uh, persuasion campaign um, I can see all the wires and how it's put together so that's that's one piece since there are science listeners um, do you have a few tips for people that are in scientific fields on how they can well I guess it's, it's, you know they want to promote themselves but they also want to promote the science but do you have any advice for people in, in an area that might be considered difficult to promote you know scientific inquiry it's really tricky. It's really tricky. Scientists are really put in a in a in a terrible straitjacket. If you're if you're operating within the academic world, there's all these do's and don'ts. Um, I mean, it's true. I guess in any in any in any organized profession. I mean, there was, for instance, there was a time when it was considered unseemly and and even prohibited for an attorney to advertise. Um, right. That, that actually was that that actually was a thing. You know, you yeah. couldn't do it. And, and there are similar uh, unwritten laws within academia. Uh, so it's, it, it, it's, quite a, it's quite a field of icebergs that, that they have to navigate. So, all right, so, but, but setting that aside, if you actually look <laughs> at scientists that have succeeded, they've all been pretty good self-promoters. Uh, so it, it does require, uh, uh, you know, some ambition and perhaps a little bit of a thick skin. We're both fans of a guy named Dan Kennedy. Uh, who's a marketing advisor, and and Dan knows every marketing trick in the book. But one of the things that he's always, always, always stressing is do it your own way and screw the critics. <laughs> you know, I mean, don't do anything unethical, don't do anything mean, don't do anything harmful. He's not talking about that. But um, you know, at a certain point, you just have to say, look, I, I, I'm here to accomplish a mission, and my best assessment is that to accomplish that mission, I need to do this. And uh, it's ethical, so I'm going to do it. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So I guess that's that's sort of a, so that's sort of the background mindset. But the second so the second part is get in the habit of talking about your work to the public. You know, the public's fascinated by science. Some are intimidated by it, but in general, if it's presented in a friendly way, 
um, people love to hear about science and, and it, you know, and, and your, jo- in your job as a scientist, one of, one of your many jobs besides actually doing the work of science is to figure out, okay, how can I bring this down to earth so that butcher, the butcher, the baker and the candlestick maker, how, right. how can, how can I bring this down, what I do down to earth in such a way that the, um, Butcher the baker and the candlestick maker can relate to it. Now they're not going to be, you know, completely conversant in what I do because it's, you know, it's complicated. But but there's a lot that I could share with them where they could walk away and feel like, hey, I get what this person's doing. And I have to say that that, that whole TED movement uh, is a great school to attend to because there's a lot of people that have figured out that they figured out how to take their technical, uh, you know, maybe narrow in a way um, field. And find the hot points and the and the the, in, the points of interest, the fascinations within it, string them all together, and create a public uh, presentation. So, you know, it's more work, <laughs> but you know, speak at the library, speak at volunteer to speak at the high school, volunteer. You know, there's a, there's a lot of magic that takes place when you're in front of a live audience because you can see where people are falling off, you can see where people are are, are brightening up. And all that helps you focus your message. Um, so that would be that would be some fundamental uh, advice that I would give to somebody in science as preliminary foundational work to do, because ultimately, even at the highest levels, it's the person that makes their pitch in the clearest, most evocative way who gets the resources uh, ultimately. So, and, and that kind of goes counter to academic scientific language. So you kind of have to trod both worlds simultaneously. So that's, that would be my advice to scientists. Okay. Yeah. I've seen like Neil deGrasse Tyson is, you know, a very good communicator and he's like a celebrity, a scientific celebrity, but I'm sure there's plenty of hardcore scientists that say, ah, he's a hack. And same thing with like Dr. Phil in psychology and, you know, some of these <laughs> people like they're, they're superstars in their field, but. Like you said, they have to have thick skin because I'm sure they have detractors too. Oh, I, 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 absolutely, absolutely. And and you know what? Maybe they are hacks, those guys. But 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 that doesn't mean that that a legitimate scientist can't be more um, accessible to the public. There there is this thing in academia that if you're too accessible to the public, maybe you're not serious enough. And, and, and actually, we, maybe we'll get into that uh, in this discussion today because when we start talking about institutions. And the dynamics of institutions, there is, maybe we'll jump into that right now. Um, and then I'll backtrack and, and backfill in, in, later. But I okay. th- think, think the thing that people, and if you think about it, you'll know this is true. There is a very, very, very strong us versus them wiring in human beings. Um, it, it is one of the main social organizing uh, functions in, in, in anybody that wants to organize a group. Uh, if you want to organize a group of people and, and keep them in line and, and get them all feeling they're working together, find an enemy um, that everybody can agree on. This is a fundamental uh, thing that is exploited uh, by by sometimes unscrupulous people, sometimes sometimes good people. Uh, unscrupulous people would be an example of the Nazis deciding we're going to scapegoat Jews. And they are the source of all evil. They're the reason Germany can't uh, succeed. And uh, they're our enemy, and we have to deal with them. And, and he enrolled all the, the mentally deranged people into that, and then they created a, a sort of a critical mass that sort of 
you know, created this wave of criminality, mass criminality. Um, now, it, it can also be done on a, on a benign way. A, a very smart thing that a sports coach will do, believe it or not, is make himself hated <laughs> by the team. And you may say, wait a minute, that sounds crazy. No. Now, as long as you're, you know, you, you're really a good coach and you're showing, you're really showing them the right stuff and you really want them to win and, and that, you know, and, and you're doing everything so they do win. So that, that's all got to be going on. You actually do care about them as, as people. However, if you manage to position yourself as the bad guy, that means every team member has a common enemy. You. <laughs> You know, it's like, okay. and so, and so, and so they pull together. This is something that coaches use all the time. The good coaches use it all the time. So, so there is this very strongly wired us versus them dynamic that's built into every group. And it's instant. The day somebody, and I'm not picking on any particular profession, but the day somebody becomes a police officer, um, suddenly it's us versus them. I'm a member of the force and everybody else is them. You know, it's, it's the public. You know, uh, uh, it happens if you work in a restaurant, uh, as soon as you're in the kitchen running in and out with plates, you have a very different attitude about the people out in, in the, uh, the dining room. Now you can keep your integrity and realize, Hey, I'm here. I'm here to serve. I'm here to serve these people. That's what this is all about. But it's very, very, very easy, all too easy for it to slip into the, Hey, these people are a pain in the ass and, and we've got to control them, <laughs> the us versus them. And, and this works certainly on the level of politics. Your, your friendly, smiling, shiny politician, you know, brand new, you know, brand newly minted his first office. You know, he was a great community leader. And then believe me though, the day he becomes elected to office or appointed to something real, suddenly he's us. Uh, he's on the us side and we are on the them side. And that well, you, is, you know what's, um, there's a thing called the Dunbar number. I think it's the number is like 150 to 170. And it's the number of people that you can possibly have in your social circles. And, you know, if you're a politician of any size, like let's say you're the governor of Louisiana, I mean, how can you have the interests of several million people in mind and in your heart? You know, your first priority is probably you and your family. Then as you're saying, now you're part of this legislative body. So they're kind of on your team, but. You know, how are you ever supposed to like represent and care for the interests of millions of people? Well, not, actually, not only not only that. Think about this: if the, the, using the dump, continuing to use the Dunbar number, who do you see all day? Well, you see your staff, you see fellow legislators. Let's say you're a legislature. You see lobbyists because they're the only ones that have time to come to see you. Everybody else is busy earning an honest living. So, not only do you not have the capacity to you know, deal with millions of people, but in, in practical reality, you're really only dealing 90% of the time, 90% of the time with us. I mean, when I say us, I mean that, that infrastructure. And, uh, this is kind of something that might surprise people. Uh, uh, there is a building separate from the, from Congress, uh, it's just a couple of blocks away and it's basically a telemarketing center. And uh, it is illegal for a congressman or congresswoman to make a uh, fundraising call from from Congress, from the congressional building, from their office. Huh. So what they do is they just walk down the block and work the phones. And it, it is <laughs> it is it, it, no kidding. It look, you guys can look it up. It's essentially a boiler room uh, for uh, Congress people. 
And they spend fully half their time in Washington in that building on the phone raising money. So that's the other part of their Dunbar number. So they're dealing with their staff. They're dealing with fellow congresspeople. They're dealing with uh, lobbyists. They're dealing with high net worth individuals from whom they're trying to get money who want favors. And, and they're dealing with, uh, you know, some, some press people. And that's probably 90%, 95% of their interactions. So you can see how the us them thing kicks in really hard, uh, wow. with them. So that's cool. our, the, <laughs> that's what we can expect from our, our public officials. So the only, the only way I've ever, and I, and by the way, I have worked in influencing these people. I worked against a, uh, uh, it's, it's sort of a, 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 a topic of interest today, election fraud, a blatant election fraud in 1997 uh, around a bond issue in San Francisco. The the issue was, do we give a quarter of a billion dollars with a quarter of a billion dollars of interest over 30 years for free to the DeBartolo crime family, which owns the 49ers, or do we not? <laughs> and uh, the average San Franciscan did not want to give them uh, a free quarter of a billion dollars with, with no strings attached. However, the night of the election, even though it was behind uh, 10% on every single count of the ballot, when the very final ballot box came in, four hours delayed, it was 90% for, and it pushed it over to the 50.1% uh, simple majority. Yeah, right? <laughs> and so, stati- you know, immediately professional statisticians came out and said, what, what, what that, what just happened is statistically impossible, right? So, so anyway, um, I, we fought that and, um, luckily, uh, DeBartolo actually got arrested, um, uh, handing a suitcase with $400,000 in cash to an ex-governor of Louisiana. And th- that sort of blew up his, his, uh, whole life, basically. And so the stadium never got built, but we, we did manage to, to, to fight those folks. Uh, another area where I was involved was the flooding of New Orleans, which was which was not a uh, natural disaster. It was an it was an engineering catastrophe, second only to Chernobyl. The uh, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers just simply failed to build the levees correctly. They built I beams instead of T beams. If you imagine an I just being a wall going straight down into the ground, right? And if you imagine a T beam, it goes straight down into the ground, and then there's a base. Right, that's the up inverted T. The T's upside down. Right, it anchors. Yeah, like a yeah, it anchors it. Right. So you know, water's heavy, and you know, if you have a storm surge, it, the water becomes heavier. The force becomes heavier. So if you don't put those walls deep enough, and they didn't, and they knew it, and if you don't use T's, if you use T, if you use I's instead of T's, uh, you have a chance of those walls collapsing, which is exactly what they did in Lake Pontchartrain, and they also have that also happened in the in the legendary Lower Nine where suddenly uh, one day, you know, one minute you had a, a neighborhood and the next minute you had, um, you know, I don't know how many square miles just completely scraped uh, with houses on top of houses and cars transported, you know, 18 blocks down the street and so on. Anyway, we fought them and uh, we fought the news media and succeeded to the degree that we forced New York over years and thousands of hours of effort. We forced the New York Times to stop calling it a, uh, a natural disaster and, and call it what it actually was. Um, so I've, so I've had, I've had, uh, that kind of experience too, of seeing government up close by dealing with them and also dealing with the, uh, the, the news media up close. Uh, so, so I have, I have few illusions. We also, I <laughs> also, they, they, they wanted to put the second largest coal fired cement plant in North America, uh, about 30 miles north of my house. Um, and I objected to that. And, uh, um, 
but it took seven years um, for us to defeat the the company. The company was owned by uh, uh, a family that they're one of the 100 richest families in the world. And during World War II, they operated 12 different slave labor camps in Europe. Um, really nice guys, you know. And uh, yeah, I know it's just it, th- th- this. <laughs> so. I've seen it, you know, I've, I've seen these people up close, you know, and, and every local politician, every news outlet thought this cement plant f- fired by coal with no filtering at all was the greatest idea since the second coming. Like nothing could possibly be better for the region. Um, do, you, do you think people really believe that or like what, what do you think happens when someone's in politics and they're surrounded by corruption and then they participate in it? Like, do you well, think I, that, what do they think? Well, that, that, that's why I, that's why I think it was good that we started off with the Dunbar number and the us versus them phenomenon. I, I, I think we under, see, we, we might see these guys separately, you know, individually and think, well, he's a pretty good guy. He goes to church. He, you know, takes his kid to Little League, you know, or whatever these people do. And, and they may look normal, but once they are in these institutions, they, they, it is us versus them and we're the them. And at best, we are a force to be managed. At worst, we're an en- we're an enemy to be uh, defeated. So that's I really I really think the dynamic is no more complicated than that. And then you add the consensus situation. And earlier, I said, hey, you know, if you're if you're an academic and everybody in the the faculty meeting, you know, frowns on the idea of making you know the the, the discipline too popular and too easy for the public to understand. Well, maybe now you're going to be a little timid about the idea of going through the effort of making your work a little bit more. You know what I mean? We're, I'm, I'm influenceable. Everybody's influenceable. And again, it, you know, I love that that Dunbar number example because if let, let's say you're a faculty, you're you're a, a, an academic and you're on a faculty. Well, who do you spend? The, you know, you you spend some time in front of your your students, but you're spending a lot of time with your peers. You're so you're you're, you're certainly spending a lot of time doing things to raise yourself up in the in the structure that you're in. And that and there's the other problem, right? So you have these institutions, and the bigger they are, the more decadent they become. And I, I think, I mean, if anybody can show me a large organization that is not sinister beyond belief, I mean, let, I mean let's look at the Catholic Church. How many pedophiles did they uh, enable over how many decades? I mean, we don't even know. We know it's hundreds. And did they not know? They knew. <laughs> They, not only did they know, they, they kept moving these guys around, you know, oh boy, we better get this guy out of town before they, before they, before they come with the pitchforks for him and they would just move him to another town. So that's, that's the Catholic Church. Now, my, you know, and there may be Catholics listening to this and there are ardent Catholics and so on. Well, what can I tell you? This is your, you know, I'm, I was raised Catholic. This is the institution. This is what they did. So the bigger the organization, the more likely it is to be corrupt. And why is that? Because these organizations, uh, if individuals take on this us versus them mentality, institutions have it multiplied exponentially. The goal, the purpose of an institution is to survive, period. It has no other goal. You know, maybe they've got to supposedly do some stuff to survive, you know, to justify their existence, but their goal is to survive. And, you know, if we talk about science and medicine, how many fundraising vehicles are there out there for diseases where they have no intention of curing, treating, or alleviate. Well, they might try to alleviate some suffering for the TV cameras occasionally, but they, they, they'll they be out of business 
if they solve diabetes or they solve cancer or they solve, you know, whatever. They're not in the in 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 reality, uh, structurally, organizationally, they're not in the business of solving the problem. They're in the business of existing, and the business of existing involves them raising ever increasing amounts of money. And their ability to raise ever increasing amounts of money means to continue to pour money down rat holes they know don't work, uh, and claim that hey, we're we're doing our best. But why why do these institutions turn corrupt? I mean, they, like you said, they want to survive, and I guess I don't know. People just want to grow and change, and and I don't know, make bigger and better. So do you think those two desires get get entwined? You know, existing, growing, and getting better. So they have to. I mean, it turns them corrupt. I mean, well, why does this happen? There's a difference between doing work and managing work, you know, and and and, and managing or, an organization, an organization of people, and it, it's entirely possible to be an ethical manager of an organization and 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 work at the highest level of ethics. You know, that that's entirely possible. However, too often the people that are the best at doing the thing, whatever the thing is and have the highest integrity, are spending their time, rightly so, doing the, those things. And the people that are attracted to the levers of power tend to be people who are uh, less talented, less gifted, uh, less intelligent even, um, but more motivated simply by power for power's sake. I mean, it's a very strange concept uh, if you don't feel that uh, personally. Uh, it's hard to imagine it, but if you if you attend and really look around and pay attention and and see what's going on and who's who and how people actually operate, you'll see that there are definitely people in this world who uh, they're you know given the choice between doing something well and accumulating power for themselves, uh, they're going to go for power for themselves. Um, and well, what's yeah. weird is um, there's some politicians that are in their high 70s or in their 80s. And, you know, I'm not going to name names, but they have millions of dollars. They have plenty of power, but they're going for more. And, like, at that point in your life, you got to know, okay, I'm probably at the end of my life. Why not do good things? Why keep going for power until the end, until they die? Like, do they not realize they're going to die? or are they just... Well, it's it's the game that they believe in, and they uh, and they believe in it ardently. Um, I think they're, they are 100% sincere. Uh, in their uh, view of the world, <laughs> which is the world is a battlefield and the game is them having as much power and maintaining the power, having, growing, and maintaining personal power via institutions. Uh, and institutions have the ability to elevate absolutely mediocre. I mean, uh, let, let's, I think we've, we've talked about this before. Uh, we must have. But I mean, Tony Fauci is is just a classic example of an absolutely substandard, mediocre mind who has been elevated to the height of um, almost divinity um, by his institution, uh, his institutional power. You know, we could. I mean, honestly, we could put anybody. We could put a. a we could. There's a great that funny movie by uh, about with, that Peter Sellers is in, where he's he's a gardener and a not not a too. Uh, intelligent gardener, and somehow he he gets framed. Um, I don't mean in a, in the in the criminal sense, but framed in the c cognitive sense. He gets framed as a political wise man, and so people would ask him in the movie. People ask him questions, and he's so dimwitted. He all he can talk about is gardening. 
but everybody has thinks that he's talking in terms of metaphors. <laughs> so they're all thinking this is the most brilliant politician around, you know. Um, when he you know he goes, well, we need to water the roots. And they're going, oh, my God, this is so profound. <laughs> but he's literally just thinking in terms of taking care of the only thing he knows how to take care of. So institutions have tremendous power, tremendous power. And, and part of their power is the ability to elevate anybody really to a very, very high point. So if you are a person who believes, for, you know, and, and this is a weird view of, of existence because I think the average, and, 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 and who was it? I think it was Goebbels, one of these Nazi propagandists that said, you know, essentially the reason we can get away he was talking about the big lie. The reason we can get away with these outrageous lies we tell is that the average person can't imagine lying on that scale because it's just completely out of his experience. They can imagine, you know, shading the truth a little, exaggerating, you know, but they just can't imagine making up something completely outrageous. And that's the big, the big lie theory. And I think likewise, you know, we want to have, you know, all of us want to have power. None of us want to be weak and, and pushed around. But, you know, it's all in balance. You know, uh, we also want to do good things. We want to have real accomplishment. We want to make real contributions. We want to, uh, you know, help our fellow man in a real, in a, in a real way. Uh, um, but I think in certain people, it, it's, it's the, it's power first and last and everything else they're doing is just uh is just a sideshow. You know, for instance, if uh if it's Germany in the nineteen thirties, well they're they're just gonna put on an armband and, and uh try to rise to the top of that pyramid. If it's you know China in the forties, um and it looks like the communists are gonna win, by God they're gonna become a communist. Uh and, and that's you know there, there's a type of person like that. Uh and what what they they're they become dangerous when they are both intelligent and and energetic and ambitious, um, and and the reason they can the reason they succeed is while everybody else is like you know while while, while legitimate scientists are focusing on doing real science, these guys are focusing on understanding the levers and the structure of the institution that they've targeted that they want to rise to the top of. So they're spending ninety percent. It's just like you know it's kind of like what we say in business. If if you want to succeed in business, best devote. You know, assuming your product is good, best devote 90% of your day to marketing. Uh, because it, exactly. if you're involved, if you're not doing that, you're going to get swamped by somebody who is. So if you take that same principle and say, okay, devote 90% of your mental energy to understanding the social dynamics of this dysfunctional, uh, institution and figure out how you can rise yourself to the top. Now, if, you know, let, let's let's look at uh, let's look at Fauci because he's just the classic example of this. Um, very few people realize who put Fauci in power. Fauci was put into power by George W. Bush when George W. Bush was the vice president. Um, and how exactly they got to be friends is is not known. And Fauci clear, and I know I know they I I know that that's how it happened because Fauci lies about it. <laughs> he says that. George W. Bush heard I was doing some interesting things and came to my office. Yeah, right. Uh, it, while he was president? No, no, while office. he was vice president. While he was vice oh, president. I don't, I have a feeling it didn't happen that way. How those guys found common ground, I don't exactly know. However, I do know, 
and I, and I made a film in which there's, there's a segment uh, that includes actual live footage. George W. Bush was George H. W. Bush was already leveraging using his relationship to Fauci um, in 1987 as a political calling card. Um, and and I, w- I don't want to go too off, far off the track, but if if people were around in the 80s, they will know that in the in the early 80s there was a lot of noise about about this so-called emerging disease called AIDS. And um, it was a, it was a political hot button. And there was just more and more and more noise, and it was not getting solved. And so um, uh, George H.W. Bush saw that one way he could grab a certain demographic was to give the appearance of, being, of working on behalf of solving the problem. And I even found a, a, a video somewhere, it was unbelievable, where he went to give a talk to the NIH, NIH employees on the day of the invasion of Panama. <laughs> and uh, I know a lot of history, and then people either know this history or they don't. So one of the first things that George H.W. Bush did was invade Panama um, to take out uh, this guy named Manuel Noriega, um, who was just a garden variety Central American thug, like all the other garden variety Central American thugs we've done business with. Um, the problem with this guy was he didn't want to support the, the, the war in Central America anymore, and he was vocal about it. Um, and so we sent an army down there and killed approximately 10,000 civilians and, and threw him in a prison in, in Florida. But anyway, when he, but all illegally, you know, with no legal basis at all. But, um, when, when the day, the day that happened, he was at the NIH headquarters just conveniently giving, coincidentally, not conveniently, coincidentally giving a talk to NIH employees. And he basically segmented from, hey, you know, we're fighting in Panama and you're fighting on the front lines of AIDS. You know, it was uh, it was quite an amazing thing. And then his son, not, and not to get too far off, but it's, it's important to see these these background levels, of, uh, levers of power. His son, George W. Bush, and I have we have the vid- footage of that in the film, too. Um, the day he was supposed to address Congress to talk about w- was he or was he not going to invade Iraq? That was kind of a big topic. He started his his address to Congress and to the nation announcing a brand new AIDS relief package for Africa. It turned out that Fauci very wisely hooked his wagon to the, the Bush family, st- you know, uh, horses or whatever. And they in turn used him. Whenever they wanted to do something despicable, they'd, they would always front run it with a new program to alleviate the suffering of AIDS, which which, all in, which, which if you were going to do that, you had to involve Fauci because AIDS was Fauci's baby. Now, part of the reason that Fauci might have been on the, the radar for, for so many governmental things is little known fact that his de- department in NIH is also involved in development of uh, bioweapons um, uh, countermeasures. Uh, which includes which includes vaccine manufacturing. So it's a, how, how he could be in the news twenty four seven for an entire year and not a single mainstream news media outlet mentions that one of his departments is one of the leading edge departments of of uh, developing rapid vaccines to deal with um, um, uh, terrorist attacks or, or or even you know first real real nation attacks, biological attack, boggles my mind. But anyway, it's levers of power, levers of power. So, he, you know, Fauci learned somehow how to get into the NIH. Uh, he got, he became, or, or got, get in charge of the NIH. And I, and I believe that happened by the virtue of his relationship with George H.W. Bush, W. George W.H., however you say, H.W. Bush and Herbert Walker. And, 
they struck up the friendship, and that's how he became head of NIH. And then for the re- next 36 years, he just cooperated and did the bidding of every president. And just because you have to realize, when you look at Fauci, this is an, this guy never had congressional approval. His job never required him to go through a congressional hearing. Uh, he certainly wasn't elected, but he's kept the same job for 36 years. So, long story short, this is an example of somebody who has made his entire focus accessing and controlling the levers of power. Uh, in his case, in the federal bureaucracy, specifically. NIH and the whole industrial complex. So while yeah, other he people, holds the, the purse strings to a lot of research. Well, well, yeah. I mean, that's his. He is a he's an evil genius in the sense that he went for a good target. You know, that's ninety percent of life is figuring out what's the best target to go after. You know, like sometimes you know you have to think that through carefully. Well, if you want to, if you want to a have a lot, if you want to have tremendous personal power, and and let's talk about money. How, over, and this is, you guys look it up, over half a trillion with a T, $500 billion has been extracted from the United States Treasury since 1984 on behalf of AIDS research. All that money, not all of it, but, but a huge portion of that money is, was under, is under Tony Fauci's personal, uh, control. How, so how much was that again? Half a trillion with a T. It's, I couldn't believe it. I had to triple check it. I even had to hire a researcher and I said, is this real? And, uh, yeah, you know, 36 years of 50 million here, 100 million there, a billion, you know, 550 billion there. It, it, it starts to add up. If you think that is a, and, and that's real money, you know, so when you think of, of the kind of power that, that, that wheel, so, so he's got, he, he very wisely got in charge of the purse strings. He kept friendly with all the presidents. If they needed him to do something to make them look good, he had a solution for them. Um, and then on the other side, he's been the best agent for the pharmaceutical industry imaginable. Again, I'm going to make a lot of references to my film because it's, it's all in the film, HIV equals AIDS, Fauci's first fraud. At the very end of the film, after you realize that that uh, that 99% or 99.9% of things called AIDS were not AIDS at all. If you realize that the PCR test was used in a, in a very deceptive manner to call people HIV infected when in fact they weren't. If you realize that, that uh, the FDA approved the use of a, a formerly cons- toxic, considered toxic substance on an emergency basis based on fraud. That's AZT. Uh, if, if, you know, if you realize they, they, they were giving this drug to pregnant women uh, without symptoms based on the fact that they were positive to a test that was completely unreliable. Uh, and not only that, not only giving it to them, but in some cases, if they were poor and on welfare, compelling that they take it. Uh, when you realize all these things, you kind of realize, wow, this is this was a bad thing. So at the very end of the film, it's a, it's a speech Fauci's giving, and he's announcing or he's, he's recounting the 36 or 38 or 49, some incredible number of drugs that have been developed to, quote, fight AIDS um, since he started his his uh, crusade in, in 1984. And every one of those drugs funded by the taxpayer and a massive payday for pharma. And then all these programs that they, they, they developed in Africa, in, in low-income neighborhoods in the United States, subsidizing the distribution of these drugs, just payday on top of payday on top of payday. And all these organizations rely on money and all these organizations have as their first in, first imperative, and maybe their last imperative, it's to survive, period. Okay? So whoever's ever bringing in money, 
is is by definition good. <laughs> do, you, do you think that um, high level politicians or people like Thatcher? Do you think they hate people? Do you, think you know, they it, hate those who they control or govern. I don't know what their psychology is. I think about that guy um, who was running that Ponzi scheme, Bernie Madoff. You know, he he certainly knew exactly what he was doing. He knew he was cooking the books. Uh, he knew he was taking money from people that at some point he would never be able to return it. So he was causing yeah, He knew he was causing economic and financial harm to people. Did he actively hate people, or did he get involved? Uh, did he have very weak <laughs> uh, uh, moral moorings and and an incredible need for power and adulation? Um, you know, if you combine those things, right, you, you can, your ethics are a little shaky. Uh, maybe you feel empty inside. I don't know, you know. Maybe you have this, this overarching desire for power and, and, and control and attention. And all those things start slipping you, sweeping you away, and you just start justifying. Um, so I, I you know, not being inside their minds, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure he likes his wife, uh, Christine Grady, who – People should know somehow became head of ethics and human experimentation standards for NIH. Why that's not news? Why that's not been mentioned ever in the entire year that Fauci has been in the headlines every day, 24-7? I don't know. But um, I'm sure he likes her. <laughs> I'm sure he likes his kids. I'm sure Hitler liked his pet dog, you know, but so I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know what's exactly what's going on with them, but I do know that they've made the decision to get swept up by the basis of human motivations, you know. And since since organizations, uh, large organizations, uh, first imperative is to survive and, and grow, um, they don't – and they're very good politicians. All these guys are extremely good politicians. They understand social dynamics. They understand – Who's the power person here, and what do I need to do to please this person at this time? Uh, they're very good at all that, um, and and that's their focus. They're not thinking about the next scientific discovery. They're not thinking about how we're going to help humanity. Um, it's not it's so, not the issue. Yeah. So you you fought corruption a number of times. Right now, I mean, with the you know the COVID situation, the scandemic, as people call it, some people call it. Um, uh, is this just yet? Is this totally familiar territory to you, or is there anything new about to it? To like, totally, totally, totally familiar. For for example, and, th and this is a little little different, but it's similar. So back to back to New Orleans. You know, eighteen hundred people died that day, and then several thousand more died within the next ninety days from injuries and shock and and you know displacement and all that. Um, hundreds of thousands of people lost their homes and everything they owned beautiful city was completely gutted. Uh, I mean, this was a catastrophe beyond words. And the primary, I got to tell you, and I was there and I saw it and I was in it up to my neck. The primary imperative of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers was to cover its own ass. That's all they cared about. They did not care about doing the right thing. They only cared about making sure that their uh, culpability in the situation was obscured. And let me tell you how sinister it got. And, and they, they had employees in the New Orleans branch of the, of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers as sock puppets 
um, pretending to be average Joe citizens using, you know, multiple aliases on discussion boards all over the United States, shouting down, blaming, shaming anybody that tried to raise any questions about how those levees collapsed. Okay. And they were caught doing it. And they continue, this is all in a book, by the way. It's called, um, Words Whispered in Water, I think is the name of it. The author is Sandy yep. Rosenthal. And, um, they were caught doing it and they kept doing it after they were caught. So, I mean, imagine that, but, you know, the, the devastation was total. It was, it was as bad as any military could have. I don't, I don't in fact, uh, short of dropping a, you know, like a incendiary bombs or an atomic bomb on a city, I don't know how you could do more damage to a city than, than, than their engineering failure. And their whole purpose for being is to protect people from flooding and, and to, to make sure navigation channels are, are reliable, right? That's, that's what they exist for. And right. here they failed massively through their own fault. And I'm telling you, the, the, there, the, there were bodies still floating in the water, and they were having meetings about how do we make sure that we don't get blamed for this. And so, so what happens? And this, this is applicable to the COVID thing, and we'll, we'll, we'll connect it to COVID in a second. Remember, they've got people on the payroll whose whole job is to have relationships with the news media. They're called PR people. That's their, that's all they do. They don't do anything else. Like they come to work on Monday, <laughs> you know, like most of us work for a living and we do things, right? They come to work on Monday with their, you know, box of donuts and they're chatting with the, you know, the reporter at the Times Picayune, the New Orleans Times Picayune or at the, you know, and that, 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 that all day, all year long, right? So as, as, so as soon as the, the flooding started, they knew everybody's phone number. They had the relationship. The, re, the city was in disarray, right? I mean, most, I mean, Sandy, who wrote the book, she was in a motel in, in uh, Baton Rouge. They had to throw everything and their dogs in a car and, 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 and leave town. You know, they were, nobody was in any position to talk with the news media except the, the, the PR people from, from the uh, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. They were high and dry and well fed and, and they had all the time in the world. And the news media people, not my favorite group of people in the world, kind of lazy. Um, their attitude was, well, here it is on a silver platter. We'll just, that's the story. Let's run with it. And uh, Sandy's biggest problem, biggest challenge, and, and it took years. Uh, years and years and years was to get them to stop repeating the the absolute unsupportable lie that uh, it was the hurricane. So just so just so people know, I, I'm kind of this is kind of a pet interest of mine, but it, but it, it does create a good analogy. There's a scientific fact that New Orleans was hit by a Category Three hurricane. That's fact. That's not subject to change. That's what happened. Okay. Now. Eastern uh, 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 coastal Mississippi was hit by Category Five, and that's pretty close to an atom bomb. I mean, that just rips you know you know two hundred year oak trees out by the roots and throws them right. But Category Three, no, the levees in New Orleans were designed to survive a Category Five hurricane. Okay, so. So when you have a Category 3 hurricane, that, that really didn't do – I mean, it ripped some shingles off the roof. You know, it really didn't do much. And then a couple of hours after the storm is gone and the clouds have cleared, and all of a sudden the, the city starts filling up with water? What's yeah, that all about? Yeah, but it, it make, it, it, you're right, exactly. It makes no sense. And yet 
the news media stuck to that bullshit like glue for years, and they had to be pried off that lie with a crowbar. Now, part of it was their own laziness. Part of it was the fact that the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, in addition to getting a jump on, on the story, then spent, I think, $50 million or some huge amount of money on PR firms to keep pumping the story, to make, you know, to keep, you know, attacking Sandy, attacking the critics, burying any facts that came out, and, and just continuing pushing the party line. So you have these institutions that have a tremendous amount of resources, and one of their resources is full-time employees who have nothing else to do but develop somewhat intimate relationships with news media people. And news media people, you know, they kind of want to rip and read. They want to get the press release, rip it, and <laughs> write it, rewrite it, and announce it that night. They don't want to have to do a lot of deep thinking. And they sure don't want to have to change their minds. And, you know, once people have this, this is, and this is COVID-related, right? Once people have the story, this is a problem with the human human psychology. Once a, once a story settles, uh, a lot of people lack the flexibility to reexamine their their assumptions. It's a very rare ability. By the way, that's one of the beauties of real science, right? Real science, real science, right? real. The science that got us to where we are today is all about the mental discipline of reexamining your assumptions. That is a hard thing for human beings to do. And maybe, just maybe, that is the greatest uh, contribution that modern, that real modern science has made to humanity is this discipline where we say, you know what? Maybe we're not right. Maybe this guy's new evidence, you know what? Maybe we got to throw it out. We got to throw out our, our, our uh, interpretation and start from scratch. Problem. The institutionalization of, of knowledge, right? Suddenly an institution's survival, and that includes all the, the psychopathic bureaucrats that are running it, depends on a misinterpretation of the data. Now, now based on all that I've said tonight, so, or today so far, if there is a large organization that is, you know, survival first, chock full of power mad people whose sole interest in life is feathering their own bed, and all that whole edifice depends on one interpretation of facts. What do you think the chances are that that institution, with all its resources and all its PR connections and all its government connections, we have when we get to COVID, we have to talk about government connections too. But but for now, we'll just talk about media connections. What is the chance that they're going to say, "Oh, we got it wrong"? Let, let, hey, guys, PR guys, <laughs> call up NBC, call up the BBC, <laughs> call up the New York Times, explain to them that we didn't build those levees correctly and we're responsible for the death of those 1,800 innocent people. Yeah, what do you what do, do, right? That's you never going to happen. That's never going to happen. And, in fact, it's still to this day, you know, they've, you know it's all in the fine print. It's all, you know. Yeah, even, you, even as a regular person, if I <clears> – <throat> If I listen to the news and I start to believe one thing for a while and then I realize it's different, it would be embarrassing for me to say, well, I was wrong. I was duped. I shouldn't have listened. And, you know, this is the right thing. So they get everyone invested in their, in the stuff they put out. And then it's hard for anyone to say I was wrong. Yeah. And there, and there's the beauty of, of real science at its highest level. Cause real science says, real science is objective, right? It says, look, we've seen all this stuff. And it led us to hypothesize some things. So we created some controlled experiments where we could test 
the validity of our hypotheses, right? Or I don't know how to say that, hypotheses. And, um, and, and, and we ran these tests, and, and here's how we ran them, and here's the results we got. And based on those results, which you could duplicate yourself, you can, you can run this test yourself because we explained exactly how we did it and make sure that we got it right. We are going to propose a theory. It's just a theory. It's our best understanding to date. See, when science is done that way, it's a beautiful thing, and it advances humanity tremendously. The problem is it gets distorted. Careers get based. You know, if somebody's famous for the theory of X, and it turns out that he was completely wrong. I mean, let, let's take this guy Gallo, you know, who, who claimed to prove that HIV caused AIDS. You know, I mean, there are whole books written about what a fraud he is. But, um, you know, is he going to come out and say, yeah, you know, I, you know, you know who is good though? The Luc, Luc Montagnier, who, who is actually the guy that got the Nobel Prize for, um, believing he found a, a virus called HIV. He came out later in his career and said, you know what? It's present in people with AIDS-like symptoms, but I don't think it's the causative factor. You know, but, but inter- interestingly enough, it totally ignored by the AIDS, AIDS Incorporated, we'll call them. The AIDS, the AIDS. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. I see that now with, with COVID. You know, it, it, I, I've asked many times, why hasn't a country or various countries said, we're going to figure this out. We're going to put together, you know, a $5 billion fund and we're going to disclose everything we find and we're going to save the world because we want to be the good guys. And, you know, why has no one stepped up and done that? It makes no sense to me. Well, let me, let me explain that in a second, but let me just say one thing too before we, before we go to that. And one country has done that, by the way, Tanzania, but, 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 uh, but, but not, not that it's done them much good. Um, but I mean, literally, I believe that if Jesus Christ himself, like if you believe in that, that whole, um, scenario, if he came back <laughs> and went to Rome, <laughs> you know, and knocked on the door of the Vatican and said, Pope, you got it all wrong, buddy. <laughs> Like, this is not what I, this is not what I had in mind. You're not going to listen to him, you know. So I mean, if if you, if you, I mean, that's sort of an absurd exa- example of the dynamic, but it is the actual description of the dynamic. It once these things, they'd, 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 re, they'd re-crucify him, probably. Ah, uh, yeah, he'd, he'd, you know, he'd say, well, they'd say, come, come here, come, you know, come into this room. <laughs> they'd bolt the doors, and he'd never, he'd never emerge uh, alive. So, and that, that is actually probably what would happen. It's not likely they would say, oh, well, God, you're right. We've, we really, uh, screwed this up. Our apologies. All right. So government. So the reason I keep harping on, on AIDS and stuff is twofold. Well, threefold. One is the same dude is involved. Fauci was back in 84, um, pumping the AIDS, um, propaganda. Uh, and he, boy, coincidentally, here he is again, uh, promoting the same thing. His power base, both reputationally and economically and politically, derives from 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 the AIDS industry. We'll call it an, an industry. Um, so that's what. And the third point is the exact playbook that they use to defraud the world uh, on HIV equals AIDS is what exactly what how they persuaded the world that SARS two equals something called COVID. And by the way, you know, let's, let's, let's get real here. If you go to the CDC's own website and, cause we have to, we have to get, we have to get down to basics. What's the cause? What's the process? And what's the problem? Right? 
that, that gets created. So if we start by looking at the problem, if you go to the CDC's own website and read their description of COVID, it's smoke. It's a collection of symptoms that could literally be the flu, a cold, uh, indigestion, food poisoning, uh, chemical poisoning. You know, it, it's not a clear disease, right? So that's, so that's, so, so, so the problem is something that is, has been, has been defined in such a vague way. Now they got a little bit more legalistic later on. They said, well, if you have these symptoms and you've been somewhere, <laughs> where this disease is known to exist, talk about circular logic, then we can say you contracted it, right? So theoretically, if somebody was in Antarctica and they had these symptoms and there had been no reported cases of, of COVID in Antarctica, then they could have said, well, this isn't COVID because all the conditions don't apply. But since everybody on the planet Earth is theoretically uh, possibly in contact with somebody that has COVID, they legalistically got the quote right to declare all these people, all these different illnesses, COVID. Um, so anyway, so that, that's so that's something that people and, and and this is not me conspiracy theorizing. Please go to the CDC's own website, read their own definition of this disease. What and ask yourself after you've read it, what the hell are they talking about? <laughs> you know, this is not you know like if if we're talking about pancreatic cancer, we know what the markers are, we know what it looks like, we know that you know. We, but, but when you talk about COVID, so it's, it's very vague, right? The other thing is there's got to be a mechanism. Like this causative factor does A, B, C, and D resulting in this disease. Now, we've already said that the disease is defined so vaguely we can't even – we're not even sure what the hell it is. I have Fauci on video in April saying he doesn't know what the causative factor is. He doesn't know how SARS creates COVID. To him, he, he laughed. He thought, oh, it's, 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 a, it's a stumper. Well, if you're telling the world that a particular virus is causing a particular disease, you should know the mechanism by which that occurs. And there's a thing called Co uh, Koch's postulates. It's, you know, maybe it's outdated, <laughs> you know, but, but nobody has formally dared say that it should be thrown out. And Koch's postulate says, look, if you think that a, a that a, a microorganism or a biological thing creates a disease, you have to one, purify, which we would, in layman's terms, we'd say isolate. You gotta isolate that thing, whatever it is, right? Then you gotta put it into an uninfected animal and make that animal sick with that thing. Then you have to take it out of that animal and put it in another animal and make the animal sick, right? You have to be able to do all those things to say that A causes B. Well, they've right. never done that. Well, they certainly never did it with AIDS. And they've, they've never done it with, with COVID. So basically there was a, a guy that got, basically one guy who was already very sick. He was a 62 year old guy. He had multiple illnesses. He came in, he had trouble breathing. They stuck something down his nose. They pulled something out. They, and they declared it SARS too. <laughs> I mean, and if you look at the, 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 the electron microscopic picture of, of SARS too, not the 3D, you know, three, you know, full color, you know, computer animated version, but the actual picture of it, right. it, it it's not the clearest thing in the world, right? So yeah, based on, to see anything, yeah. so based on that and a theory and no explanation of, of the mechanism by which this causes a disease that they don't even define very well. 
that's what this, I mean, so, so if we're talking about follow the science, that is literally the science they're following. It is no more sophisticated or, or solid than that. And there are plenty, believe me, there are plenty of professional immunologists. Um, in fact, there was, there was a guy, I don't know what he's doing now, but in the very early days, like back in April, I mean, he, he's the head, he's the head of immunology for a major hospital in my region. That's all I'll say. And, um, yeah, he wore a mask to work, but he thought the idea of wearing a mask anywhere else or even at work was absurd, but he did it anyway. Right. So now they ask, so, so let's talk about co-option, right? Let's talk about somebody like him or, 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 or doctors, right? So first of all, you have a lot of medical doctors who, who frankly, I, I think their, their, their main virtue is they, for a, a period of their young lives, they were able to glue themselves to a chair and memorize tons of stuff and pass tests. I think that's the only skills they have. I don't think they have skills of, of insight or rationality or reasoning or, or, you know, anything beyond that. But, but at some point from like 18 when they started college to, you know, 28 or 30 when they finished their residency, they were able to grind it out. And God bless them. They go through a lot to get that piece of paper. But that's the skill they have. They don't have any other skills beyond any other normal mortal human being. And from the minute they arrive in medical school, they are taught that it's all about drugs and surgical intervention, period. They're not taught about diet. They're not taught about lifestyle. They're not taught about, you know, the natural resilience of biological structure, biological systems. Uh, they're taught, they're talked about how people break down and what you do when they, what, what drug you give them when they break down and what surgical intervention. And if you, for instance, if you go to a cardiologist with a heart problem, they are going to have drugs and they're going to have surgical intervention and they're going to have absolutely nothing else. And yeah, one not- other, uh, one other bookend to that is, you know, I've interviewed dozens and dozens of people that had a certain condition. They all were told that there's nothing we could do or you're crazy, whatever it is. They had to research themselves. They were able to help themselves. And now they're an advocate for people for that condition. And it's always the same story. And yeah. doctors never seem to be able to offer any help. And they always, they always had the same, the same thing. Well, we don't know what causes this, but we know how to manage it. And um, parenthetically, it's managed by a lifetime uh, uh, subscription, <laughs> you know, and uh, to, to a particular drug. And, you know, and as business people, you and I both understand if we're publishers, um, we want to sign people up for subscriptions. We want, you know, we want recurring subscriptions. <laughs> we don't want, we don't, we don't want every month for someone to look at our magazine or newsletter or consulting uh, service and say, do I really want to do this anymore? No, we want to just put them on the automatic and have them pay forever. That's how the ultimate, the ultimate continuity for the rest yeah. of their life. Yeah. And so, and, and, that, and that makes sense. I mean, from a business point of view, that makes sense. Now, if you're talking about treating people's health, does it make sense to put somebody on a drug forever? Um, maybe, maybe it does, but, but maybe, maybe if the, maybe if you actually spent some research dollars figuring out how people develop the disease in the first place, uh, you could then figure out how to uh, reverse the disease, you know, stop doing the things. It's, it's funny. Nobody ever tells somebody, stop doing the 99 things you're doing that are caught giving you heart trouble, you know, <laughs> you know, you know, consumption of coffee, you know, consumption of sugar, consumption of alcohol. Uh, well, you're not even allowed. I mean, doctors and I mean, most individuals are not even allowed to suggest alternatives or they'll be, you know, attacked. Well, maybe, yeah, we might have talked about this in the previous call, this, this thing called the standard of care. 
and you know every every discipline has it and um it's basically a cookbook and you know the beautiful phrase standard of care and you think oh i'm getting the standard uh, you know the high standard of care no you're getting whatever is in the cookbook and the cookbook invariably was written by um representatives uh of the pharmaceutical industry i mean it's, you know and that's just the way it is you know so you have a whole profession of people uh that's what they're immersed in on a daily basis so how many of them have the guts? Let's be, let's be real. If you have an MD, uh, you have got a license to print money. I mean, even if you can't organize a business or organize a practice, you, you know, you can, you can land somewhere and you're going to be getting paid, you know, maybe not rock star dollars, but way better than a, you know, a barber or a, <laughs> or, you know, or a school teacher just because of your piece of paper. And they all know their piece of paper is, can be taken away at the drop of a hat. And, uh, they don't want that to happen. So if you, if you've spent, you know, 10, 12 years, uh, to get this piece of paper and you have been brainwashed all that time that the only solutions are drugs and surgical interventions and whatever the authorities say, and you know that your piece of paper is at risk, if you buck that, I mean, it takes a rare per, now there are MDs and they are the heroes of the age and we have them, but they're few and far between, understandably. But uh, the, the average physician is either going to just buy into all this nonsense because they don't have the intellect to challenge it, or they're going to just grit their teeth and go, "Well, it's just more bullshit. We'll just we'll just roll with it." So if we if we go bit by bit, we know how the media was co-opted. They're easy to co-opt because they're lazy. They're also easy to in, in this case they're easy to co-opt because um, turn on the TV news and who's sponsoring the news? It's it's Merck, Squib. It's you know it's it's all these pharmaceutical companies. Also under the radar, bizarrely, is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in the last 10 years alone have given over $100 million, count it, $100 million to support health and medical reporting at the BBC, at Le Monde in France, at El Pais in Spain, at NPR, the Los Angeles Times, Reuters, et cetera, et cetera. So they have, so we're talking about wiring. John D. Rockefeller said a really interesting statement that I misinterpreted and I think a lot of naive, uh, entrepreneurs mis, misinterpret. And I don't misinterpret it anymore. He said the abilities, and I'm paraphrasing, the ability to deal with people is a skill that I'm willing to pay more for than any other, right? So when I heard that, I thought, oh, he's talking about managing people or inspiring people or getting the most out of the workforce, you know. But then I started reading about how Rockefeller built his um, his empire, and it was built through bribery and coercion and thuggery uh, and, and, and a lot of, you know, double dealing. And, and a lot of, you know, he had a bag man that went and delivered money to, to various people to, to get them in line. Now, if we take this a step back to an even more primitive um, uh, application of this, so you take a country like Mexico, which has really, I mean, severe problems with with their narco uh, narcos down there. Um, you have police chief. It doesn't get reported as much as it used to, but it's still happening. You know, you'll have an ethical, honest police chief just murdered in broad daylight in retaliation for being too good at his job, and basically. Um, the the proposition given to someone like that um who's supposed to enforce the law and is trying to enforce the law is uh uh plato 
or plumo. <laughs> I'm mix, missing up mixing up the Spanish. Plumo, but, yeah. But it means That's letter silver. Yeah. Letter silver. It's like, here's the deal: you play ball with us, you're going to get you know money. You screw around with us, we're going to put a bullet in the back of your head. Your choice. We're we're we'll go either way. We have no problem. Now that that is the example of corruption in the most extreme uh, case. But if you look at it on the institutional level, let's say you're a reporter, and you're looking at all this COVID stuff, going, but but wait a minute, only only point oh 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 one percent of people under thirty who get this die. That's one out of hundred thousand or something. You know, um, how can we be shutting down schools? You know, your editor will say, "Hey, uh, don't go there." And if you if and if you if you don't go there, you'll keep your job. If you do go there, you'll be out of a job, and and maybe you'll find yourself unemployable in the profession. And we've had a lot of good journalists driven out of journalism. In fact, the best journalists, I would say, today, almost without exception, I can't think of anyone that actually is employed <laughs> by an institution, are all independent journalists. Um, so that that's a, that's a, a milder example of lead or 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 silver. Medical. Let's look in the doctors. Okay, you're a doctor and you're working at a hospital and you're saying, I, I just can't wear a mask. I, it doesn't make sense. I, I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm a radiologist. This guy's got a broken leg. He's not coughing. I'm not coughing. Why are we wearing masks? Uh, well, letter, letter or, or, or silver. You, you want to keep working here? Silver. You want, you want to see the door? Lead. Okay. So if we look at these institutions as being by nature corrupt because their first imperative is survival, First, and you're and the benefit of whoever they're theoretically supposed to serve a, a distant third or fourth, and and we also realize they're run by people whose primary motivation is not service, it's personal power, and you have a you know an, a, a critical mass of these people at the top calling the shots. So we've got we have an institution that by nature has got a problem, and it's being run by people who have a problem, okay, and now they're dictating policy. Uh, to people who are scared. And, uh, you know, and I, I don't fault anybody. I, I can't, I'm not in their shoes, so I can't say. I, I can't say how it works, because yeah. it's patently it, obvious. But you I, know, it's funny, it's personal power, I thought of Tony Robbins. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's funny. But I mean, we all want it, and, and it's a legitimate desire. It's, do we get our personal power by inserting ourselves into a, a powerful organization where we control levers and resources and other people or do we develop our personal power by you know knowing what we what we value and what we what we want to go after personally and developing ourselves and developing our skills and developing our legitimate relationships with people you know like so so personal power can can be interpreted a lot of different ways so we've seen how we've seen how um it, it was easy to corrupt the media i mean they're easy they're easy to corrupt out of laziness and the fact that when they get stuck on a story on an out on an outlook, they don't want to embarrass themselves by changing course. But we also have Bill Gates shoveling in excess of a hundred million dollars in the last ten years. And, and this is free money. This is hey, we we want to help you do health reporting. Here's two and a half million dollars. <laughs> you know, I mean, why why is Bill Gates a a a, a broken down bullshit artist? Uh, who made his money based on uh, the uh, luckily, luckily monopolizing the the operating system for the personal computer? Um, why is he 
held in such high esteem. Why are we interviewing about public health matters and acting as if he has any expertise? Based on what? Based, based on the money he gave the, the, the institution. Because the guys running the newspaper, uh, you know, Gates calls up and they say, yes, Mr. Gates, uh, we'll arrange an interview for you. <laughs> it's, it's just so simple. Well, I've you know, seen him literally on video saying that he's made 20 times his money uh, through vaccines. Yeah. It was an unbelievable return, and I've heard that he's more powerful than most nations. He's like a superpower. The Gates Foundation is a superpower unto itself. Well, I can't imagine um, Upper Volta or or uh, Sierra Leone being able to give away $100 million uh, to to influence the... <laughs> The, the reporting uh, uh, on world health, right? So yeah, he's he's richer than a lot of countries for sure. So that so we so now we see how doctors were corrupted, and we see how um, uh, journalism was is corrupted. Now the other the other thing with with the corruption of the hospitals, and I, and I, I don't have all this at my fingertips, but the federal government opened the money spigots and has just been throwing money around two hospitals um, for COVID. Uh, and this is a this is a, a reprise of what happened with AIDS. They just opened the money spigot, and the money just flowed. So you may not have personally believed in AIDS. You may not have believed that that these twenty nine different diseases that had existed before AIDS were suddenly now AIDS. But you know what? Federal government's going to give you five million dollars to develop an anti AIDS you know community program. Uh, you know what? You're an organization. You're an institution. Your job is to survive and bring in revenue. You'll salute the flag uh, and, and take that money, and you know, just you may just go ahead and do it. So that's how that that's how the hospitals have been uh, corrupted. Now the polit now the, now you've asked the politicians. How on earth is it possible that every government in the world all fell in into line with this? Uh, yeah, right. so quickly and, and so thoroughly. And I think we just, being normal people, we just, uh, underestimate, uh, the easy corruptibility of government on the one hand. And we also underestimate the ability of well-financed, well-organized people to do things on a global industrial level scale. So, for instance, if we go, um, you know, if I get in my car right now and drive 10 minutes, I can put my credit card in a machine and get gasoline reliably 24-7, 365 days a year. And I can cross this country knowing in full confidence that everywhere I go, <laughs> there's going to be a, a machine that I can get the gasoline that I need, you know. We don't give any thought to the gargantuan logistics behind that happening, right? There's got to be somebody finding the oil and pumping it and transporting the crude and taking it to the refinery and refining it and putting it in trucks and making sure that, you know, none of the stations run. I mean, that's mind-boggling, right? So, but, it, but, it, but if you think about that level of organization and the size, now, there is no reason that corruption, which is an, just, an, really, it's just another economic activity, uh, unfortunately. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? 
Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.